Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Hello to anyone who's listening, whenever you are listening uh, to the Temple Beth Am podcast. Uh, we are, um, we finished the Rashi on, I lost my page, uh, chapter 9, verse 9. So we're hanging out, about to read chapter 9, verse 10 of Shemot. Uh, as is our custom, let me go back and read one verse so we get some momentum as we're introducing the plague of Shechin, the sixth plague. V'hayala avak, God is now in the, still in the predicting mode, it will be like dust. Al kol eretz Mitzrayim, on the entire land of Israel of Egypt. Vaya al ha'adam, it will be on on men, on humans. V'al ha'behemah, on animals. L'shchin porech avabuot, as a boil which is flowering these blistering bubbles. The chol eretz Mitzrayim, throughout the land of Egypt. That's where we uh, ended up last time, and we did the Rashi, who helps us understand what a porech avabuot means. And now we're on verse ten unless anyone has anything lingering on verse 9. And why don't we ask Joanna to read? Let's give Joanna... Wow! Let's give Joanna the mic. Let's give Joanna the mic. I'm well aware of that. Vayikhu et piach ha-kifshan, vayamdu lifnei faro, vayizrak oto Moshe ha-shamayma, Vahishrin avabuot po reach ba adam uva behema. They took the ashes of the furnace and they stood in front of Pharaoh. Um, and Moshe threw it, the ashes, towards the heavens. Um, and then the Shechin became. Um, flowered bubbles on humans and on beasts. Good. On a human and on a beast. Right. Literally. Right. A, a singular human, kind of referring to humanity. Right. The, the humans of the of the country of the land. Um, on some level, this verse tells us nothing we don't know. Right? Almost every word and even word phrase has been told to us already in verses 8 or 9 in what was going to happen, and now it's happened, right? It, this verse could have been uh, contracted to vayasuchain, right? Like, like, like they did it, right? But the verse tells us in phrase by phrase everything that God said was going to happen, the taking of the soot, the standing in front of Pharaoh, the fact that Moshe singularly is going to throw it, not both of them, that it's going to become this flowering ababuot, and it's going to go on humans and animals, we could say, we knew that, right? So you actually could almost imagine Rashi having been quiet on this verse. He wasn't. He'll say something. But um, there, there aren't a lot of twists in this verse. But let's pause and see if anyone find anything in the verse they want to ask about or say about before we look at Rashi. It's just interesting, that emphasis, that um, they're there together, but Moshe is doing the throwing, because when you pay attention to the verb forms, vayichu, vayamdu, Right, and we and we saw that in the future tense in the previous verses that both of them are going to be told to go into this um, kiln. Both of them are going to fill both handfuls with the soot. But when it comes to doing the deed, it's only Moses, right? Um, and right, and the verse says explicitly that's exactly what happened. Anything else on the structure of the verse 
phrase is used, or we go right to Rashi. Sue, let's get Sue a microphone. Uh, Leonard, can you pass that microphone down? We, I think we find it easier. It's easier outside of the stands. Yeah. Well, just this, the, the heaven word, we, we talked about Hashemima last time a little bit and what that meant, but just now I'm sitting here thinking, we have feedback. Um, I'm sitting here thinking if he threw the dust heavenward, then like if you throw dust heavenward, falls back in your own eyes. It's hmm. kind of a messy business. Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting way to put it. Yeah, I think I forgot if it was Rosh or someone else talked about the 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 double miracle here that that enough dust, you know, there was some, that a small amount of dust, almost like the oil in Hanukkah was enough to be thrown into the air and then reach all of Egypt. And I think, was it Yusu? Someone also said that we could also have read Lene Faro to not just mean in his presence, but in his face, in his eyes, as if the dust was going forward and up at the same time. And then to him it was. Right, because he is Egypt, right. Uh, I see Alan's hand, then I see your hand, Rick. But hold on, give it to Alan first. This is a, a more picayune question, but in verse eight, when it's Hashamaima, there's a patach under the first mem. But when they talk about Shamaima in verse ten, there's a kamatz under the first mem. Why would there be a difference like that? So verse ten and eight. Okay. So first of all. Um, I wish Avram Holtz, who died last month, were alive and I could ask him. I don't know for sure. Here's my guess. There are, I, I can't, we've talked before how um, a, an e, e, a segolate noun that has two e, two e vowels, when that noun appears in a pausal part of the verse, either et nachta, halfway through the verse, at least musically, and so pasuk, it goes to a e, right? Lechem, lachem, eretz, aretz, gefen, gafen. Um, there are other vowels that sometimes do that, but I don't know those rules as closely. And the only difference I can see is that the first hashamaima is in a is in a tipcha, so it's not a pausal note. Whereas this shamaima is in etnachta, and sometimes the a word in an etnachta or sof pasuk demands a longer vowel, and the kamatz we don't distinguish it when we speak Hebrew, but the kamatz is a long a, and the patach is a short a. I'm not saying anyone should ever, no, not even a kamatz katan, just patach. This vowel is technically the short version of the ah sound and the kamatz, the regular kamatz, not the kamatz katan, is the longer version of the ah sound. But, you know, unless you, you know, you grew up in some um, you know, incredibly, uh, I don't know, like like a, a traditional Yemenite family, like you, you wouldn't make that distinction. But uh, from the rules of biblical grammar, at modern Hebrew grammar, it's a longer vowel, and so maybe the etnachta draws the law, the short patach into long kamatz. Why we don't see that more often, I don't know, because it's not the case, Alan, that any word that has a patach that appears in an etnachta uh, halfway through the verse gets a kamatz. This one does, but I've never pointed, I've never seen that before. So good pickup, good eyes. Yeah, um, I see Rick's hand, and I see Barry's hand. Okay. Uh, on the vowel thing, um, I used to know, uh, it was Kenner Lamb, I believe, Stephen S. Wise. He, he was uh, a, of the German tradition. He used to wear a high hat sometimes just for fun where I saw him. And the ah and the awe ah 
was different in, in Germanic. So he, when he was playing, um, he, he would bring that out mm. because we don't, we don't normally pronounce it all so much, but yeah. um, anyway, Mike, that wasn't my comment. Uh, because you asked about the struct, wasn't your only <laughs> Yes, correct. That was my first unplanned comment. I guess I did plan it because it came out of my head. But anyway, overthinking things. The, since you talked about the structure, I'd like to point out with the poreach, the uh, zakef gadol on it. It makes it stand out. It, it's a singular trope. It doesn't need any uh, helpers along the way in front of it. It stands alone. The last time we had it uh, um, uh, was in verse 6, Vayamot, death. Of course, that's very singular. And then the next time is Aish for the next plague. It, it, um, it's, it's, it's just drama. It, it, the music uh, is really dramatic at that point. Yeah, I'm glad uh, to... because it makes me realize, I did not notice this before, that the order of the three words, Shechin, Poreach, and Avabuot, are different in verse 9 and verse 10. And I was wondering, why wasn't Poreach standing alone on itself in verse 9? Because it it's part of a two-note phrase. Leshchin Poreach is a merchat and it's a two-word phrase. Leshchin Poreach. And then the Avabuot, this is verse 9, is, is a tipcha Avabuot, but in our verse, it's it's the Shechin and Avabuot that are together. Shechin Avabuot Poreach, depending on how you do it. So we would translate it the same. I actually want to look and see if Everett Fox actually translates those words differently each time because it, it, it changes what what's modifying what. In verse nine, it looks like it's a it's a boil which is flowering almost flowering as a transitive verb. What is it flowering out? It's flowering out these blisters. But in verse 10, it looks like, what kind of a shechin is it? It's a blistering shechin, which is erupting, right? The, the order changes a little bit what it means. Let me see whatever Fox uh, says. Well, we can look at all the translations. What is this? this is chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, and then I'll share the screen with everybody. 10. Okay. Uh, one second. Well, it's 9. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, can someone do that? Oh, we don't actually need to in this case because you can see it. So this is... It boils into blisters. In verse 9, when God boils is into blisters, it, it says it will become boils sprouting into blisters, which matches the order. Shechin, boils, sprouting, poreach, into blisters. He adds the into rather than... I think he doesn't want to read poreach as transitive because normally it's not a transitive verb. So he creates an, an indirect object into blisters. And in verse 10, it became boil blisters, comma, sprouting a man and bee. So he's very sensitive to the order in which the words appear. I'd never pointed, I never realized that before. Let me just see if there is, uh, if other translations do it differently. Um, let's see what JPS does. JPS, verse 9, it's on the screen here. Uh, cause an inflammation breaking out in boils in verse nine and verse 10. Yeah. JPS says it's the same thing. It does not change the translation. Corin says a pox, that's the shin breaking out in blisters. Also adds an indirect object in. And in verse 10, it became a uh, same thing. So Corin does not uh, distinguish. Let's just look at the, our new favorite one, Charles Kahana. 
63. Uh, it in verse 9, it shall become a boil, breaking forth with blisters. Uh, also doesn't distinguish. So Everfox of the four we looked at is the only translation that changes the English based on the order of those three words. Fascinating. So thanks for that, um, Rick. One, uh, wait, one more thing. Look, the Spanish, I like it's got the ulcerous there. <laughs> you see the Spanish? Yeah. Tom, toma ulcerous. <laughs> yeah, and it's also got pus. Terrific. So Well, bad. I didn't like that. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, Barry, Barry's hand was up. Let's get Barry the microphone. Then I see Joanna and Marshall. Uh, I can't reach you. So we talked about before, but it's maybe folded in for today, and so reviewing, um, it begins in 10, uh, plural, but uh, it's uh, he, he took, Moshe, singular, took it. So plural took the, the, the plural piach, and singular, Moshe Oto. Say that again, Barry. It begins with plural, vayuku et piach. Right, because both of them are taking the and in the, and the same sentence is vayizrok oto Moshe. Right, because Moses is the one doing it, but they're both gathering it. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Just double clear. Uh, Joanna and then Marshall. So as long as we're like doing that close comparison of 9 and 10, right? So if I read 9, um, um, I would expect 10 to end with Bechol Eretz Mitzrayim, and it doesn't. It ends, right? Bechol Eretz Mitzrayim is very general. Where where are they going to be? Mm-hmm. On vegetation, on things, on houses? Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly. It's a very general. And only in 10 do we understand the specificity of, oh, people and animals are what's affected by this plague. Yeah, and people and animals are mentioned in verse 9, and then the Bechol Eretz Mitzrayim is added in, and somehow it drops out in verse 10. You're right. So look, we are noticing all these things that you just don't notice unless you force yourself to slow down and read closely. Great. Uh, Marshall? Uh, I want to just bring in Robert Alter's translation, sure. and it's really wonderful here. He refers to this as a burning burning rash. Yeah, remember we looked at uh, Rashi last week. Said Shechin is from the from an Aramaic word or ancient Hebrew it means hot, heat, a burning. Right. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't here last week. That's why I was saying mm. your comment, commentary. But let me, I'll read it for others who weren't here. Maybe last week. Before you read it, Marshall, just look at the last comment of Rashi in verse nine. He says Shechin lashon chamimut, the language of heat, and he brings a um, a line from the Mishnah that refers to a shanashchuna. Right. Chet not chaf, so it's not neighborhood, a year of heat. All right, go ahead. Right. So that's exactly what he says here. Um, uh, the, ra- the fact that the plague is inaugurated with soot, taken from a kiln, may reinforce an association between burning heat and the skin disease in question. Yeah, so similar to the Suto comment that we studied two Shabbat afternoons ago uh, that I mentioned here, that there that it's a midah connected midah, right? The the incredibly hot blistering conditions under which the Israelites were forced to make the levenim, the bricks for the, pyra- for not the pyramids probably, but the buildings, and then the way that the shechin was brought upon them. Good. Uh, all right. Anyone else on this verse before we look at Rashi? Okay. What Rashi is going to say, we've already referenced out, out of the text. We, we talked about this concept, but Rashi is now going to say it inside, as we say. 
באדם ובבהמה, ואם תאמר, מאין היו להם הבהמות, והלא כבר נאמר, וימות כל מקנה מצרים, לא נגזרה גזירה אלא על אותן שבשרות בלבד. בשדות. בשדות, סורי, שבשדות בלבד, שנאמר במקנך אשר בשדה. אוקיי, פוז ונסטו אפטו דר. What if you were to say to, um, from where were these animals, these beasts? Didn't we already say um, with the previous plague, Vayamot kol mikne Mitzrayim, that all of the cattle in Mitzrayim died? Right, so let's pause and just um, understand this question. V'im tomar is a, a classic rabbinic way of asking a question saying, if you say this, I have a, I have a response to that. So if you should claim by verse, by plague six, Wait a second. How is it that Shekhin is going to break out on animals? We learned at the end of the animal pestilence plague in verse 6. You can just look right at it. This is verse 6 above. And God did this thing. And the next day, and, he, and died. Who died? All of the um, flock of the livestock of Egypt. But not a single one of the Israelites Uh, livestock died right so we when we read that verse rashi was quiet in that verse and we read another commentator i don't know if it was ibn ezra or someone else who said basically sometimes call all means rove most right so we already discussed this but rashi hasn't discussed it so rashi waits to discuss it not on that verse but on this verse where, where you might he might think you might say where are all these cattle who are or livestock who are susceptible to boils aren't they all dead And his answer, lo nigzirag zeira, what does that mean? Um, so the decree was not decreed only, but only for the animals out in the fields. Um, because it said, b'miknecha asher basadeh, for okay. the cattle in the field. Right, so if we look at um, back in verse 3, when the plague of death, Pestilence is being introduced, because Rashi is a close reader and he forgets nothing. Behold, the hand of God will be present and hard on, on the livestock. Which livestock? When we read that the first time, we're like, of course, where else would the livestock be? It's, it's, it's a version of Yaakov wearing a kippah in Parshat Vayetze, right? Of course, that's where they are. Rashi is saying, ah, that was a limitation. Who is going to die from the pestilence? Only the livestock that are uh, kept out in the field. Now, he has one more thing to say before this becomes interesting. Therefore, Bechol, or Vahayarei. Vahayarei. Vahayarei et Devar Adonai, Hichnis et Miknehu El Habatim. You have Hichnis? Yes. Do you all have Hichnis? Yes. I have Hainis. Because Hichnis means to bring in. Hainis means to make flee. Hainis, yeah. Okay, like, okay, go ahead. Um... כן שנויה במחלתה אצל ויקח שש מאות רכב בחור. Okay, so uh, translate that so far. So okay. wh- wh- what's the therefore from his picking up this fact that um, only those animals in the field died in the pestilence? 
So his therefore is to explain how we have animals to be affected by this plague. And how is it? And, and um, those who were in awe of Hashem or who feared Hashem um, brought their cattles inside their houses. Um, so pause right there. So Rashi is not on his own accord. He's using Midrashic text. He's creating a subcategory of not quite quite righteous Gentiles, but conscientious objectors, maybe Egyptian civilians who see what's happening in the palace. They're already at, at this point, when it came to Deborah, already at plague five, which means four had come saying, maybe we should listen to this guy, this God. And if God says, because we overheard it in the loudspeaker that all of the animals that were in the fields are going to die. Maybe if we bring our animals inside, right into our houses or to our, into our pens, they will survive. And behold, they did. Right. So we see Rashi creates a situation where God's power both is um, bringing down the Egyptians and beginning to infiltrate the Egyptians who are open minded to choosing the proper side in this battle. Right. All from the fact that there were animals left to be injured in the Shechem plague. Joanna? I was wondering as I was reading this, um, you know, this notion that there were Egyptians who had some sense of awe of Hashem. Um, if this is the beginning of the Erev Rav, yeah, yeah. Um, who would attach themselves to B'nai Israel when so, they left Egypt. So the reference, the Erev Rav, the, it's often translated as the mixed multitude, although in kind of modern American Jew speak, it's referred to someone in their last year of rabbinical school because they're Erev Rav, right? I wanted to know, like, I don't get the connection. Yeah. It's only a connection that it's like lifting the phrase Erev Rav. Erev, the word Erev can mean... Um, something mixed, like an Eruv, right? So the Erev Rav was a, a, a massive number of mixed people who left Egypt with us. But Erev Rav means the night before you're becoming a rabbi. So, uh, you know, if you're a fifth year rabbinical student, you're Erev Rav. Um, so the question is, where did they come from? And there are all sorts of Midrashic um, um, lines of, of inquiry that either they were um, – they were they were rabble rousers, right? Or um, what's the word that's sometimes used to describe them in the English translations? Um, riffraff, riffraff, right? Mixed multitude or riffraff, right? Which means that their presence amongst the the, um, the Israelites who left kind of brought down the spiritual power because they diluted, you know, the people of Israel. Or right, there are midrash correct. There are midrashic traditions that say these are people who understood. I want to be on this team, not that team, and it increased the spiritual power of the people in the desert. And obviously, there's no way of resolving it. I don't know if there's a specific midrash connecting this to that, but we can connect it in our minds. And what's the last thing he said, Joanna? So then he sort of brings um, proof or evidence to support his viewpoint from the mechilta where this same comment is presented in um, during the Exodus as B'nai Yisrael was fleeing. It says in the Torah that um, 600 chariots chased them. So horses. where where did these horses come from if they had all been killed? Correct. Rashi is very terse here. He doesn't actually tell us what the Mechilta says. He just says the Mechilta makes a similar comment about another verse on which you could ask where the horse is coming from. So the Mechilta says there on that verse, ah, they didn't all die in the pestilence for the same reason. The horses are part of Mithnir? Well, I mean, it's even a good question as to were there really horses in Egypt back then. But I guess 
There were. They had to pull the chariots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess. I guess. <laughs> I guess horses. Um, Count Nickne in in yeah. in this under, way of understanding the story. Marshall's hand was up. Yes. And then Barry. Uh, re referencing your Wait, mic microphone. Oh, you have one. Oh, oh I, I didn't see. <laughs> Joanna's microphone was blocking your microphone. I didn't see it. Referencing your reading of Rashi. Uh, in your text, where it says "Hey niece" and not "His niece," yes, uh, the reference here is to Chizkuni. It occurs to me that "Lachnis" means to cause someone to enter. "Lachnis" seems to me like "Lanus" means to flee, cause him to flee, right? Due to the urgency of the thing, you got those cattle into the into the house very, very quickly, right? So, in the in the notion of "legio difficultare," if you have two different versions of a text, you the one that makes more sense is the one that you might think is the original one, but most scholars say it's the reverse because it's more likely that the word that didn't make sense got changed to one that made more sense. Hichnis does make more sense. Hainis mm -hmm. suggests that the God-fearing Egyptians made their cattle, their livestock flee, right? But flee to where? Then they wouldn't be able to get them back again. So, which makes me think it was probably Hainis and someone said, no, this got to be Hichnis, right? Uh -huh. uh, so, because flee suggests depa departure. Uh, Barry, and then Rick, I see your hand. This is very short. Uh, the, 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 I, I assume uh, they lived in small houses. How, how many cattle are we talking about in each house? <laughs> right, but once the cattle left the house, oi, what a machaya. Rick. Um, when I was looking at the Rashi, I thought he was giving us an example of somebody moving a bunch of animals all at once that the, 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 he was focusing on, he took the 600 and they would have been horses. They wouldn't have been cattle <laughs> dragging the chariots uh, uh, to the anywhere. Um, so I, I, I have been nearly as afraid. Oh, look, there's Pharaoh behind a sheep. A of, yeah. Running after <laughs> us. Right. So I don't think it was comparing the animals. It was just, I think I think he's comparing the idea that you can you can just isolate a, a group of things, uh, animals, and 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 do things with them. But that's just my take. Yeah, I mean, well, if you look at the mechilta there, what the mechilta does makes the very same comment that the question is on the verse: if if the if there were six hundred chariots, they had to be pulled by animals. How could there be any animals left if they all died um, pestilence? And the answer is. They didn't all die because some of them were, were had the blessing of being old, owned by God-fearing Egyptians who brought them inside. Okay, um, okay. so that's Rashi on verse ten. If you a quick ver look at your Rashi, will show you that he's quiet for a few verses. So in those verses, we will look at other uh, comments as uh, as is our custom. Okay, uh, great, um, Alan. We haven't heard from you yet today. You want to read uh, verse eleven? You need a microphone. Um, the um, uh, Hartumim, the um, uh, sorcerers, I love the, the definition of the necromancers. <laughs> All right. They were not able to stand before Moses um, uh, because of the uh, because of the boils, uh, 
and the Khartoumim, the, the, the boils that, that were on all of Egypt. Good. So another verse where we know what the words mean, but it's not 100% clear what's the specific information that the Torah is trying to convey here, because you could translate this or render this many different ways. And the question I have, and I don't want to leave the witnesses, what, how do we understand the lo yachlu and the la'amod, and, it's, and the relationship between their inability to stand, whatever that means, and the fact that they were also hit with the shechin? Because what it seems to say is that these courtiers or necromancers or sorcerers who have been helping out and occasionally have been trying to respond to a play by saying, hey, we can do that too, or we can do it better. This time, they were not able to stand in front of Moses. Right? We can ask, what does that mean? Right? Were their legs hurting then? Were they embarrassed? But whatever, the, whatever reason, whatever it means, the reason was, mi pnei hashchin. The pnei here means really a because of, literally in the face of, but because of the shechin. Because we're being told that the shechin was also on the sorcerers in addition to being everywhere in Egypt. So let's play with some possibilities. What, what, what's the significance or the impact of this verse and the relationship between their having shechin and their inability to stand in front of Moses? Got Sue, Rachel, Allen. Um, I just want to preface this by saying that um, it, it, it always strikes me as strange that the English translation to Hartumim is magicians in these writings, because magicians just sounds like David Copperfield. <laughs> and sorcerers is so much more appropriate, and it nice. conjures the, the right imagery. It's like the magicians. I'm going to make the boils disappear, but the power of illusion. So weird. Anyway, um, I, I think it's they couldn't stand before him because they uh, their faith had been um, you know knocked over that they could that they couldn't stand they were starting to be um, they were starting to be worn down by the whole idea fascinating particularly on the heels of Rashi's comment in the previous verse that the Khartoumim it's not that they literally couldn't they they couldn't tolerate the shame or whatever standing for Moses because if they couldn't even prevent themselves from getting sheen, then they really don't have the power and maybe they're being they're on the way to being converted. Good. That's one possibility. Who is next? Rachel and then Ellen. Ellen. Um, a more straightforward interpretation is if they had Shaheen on their feet, they literally could not stand. Mm. Great, right? So, uh, if bliss, if, particularly shechin that are hot and and producing pussy blisters, they were they were uh, rehabilitating. They were convalescing. They could not stand. Good, Alan. Yeah, I find it interesting that the focus is on the Khartoumim and their particular response. And even it says it doesn't even talk about Pharaoh or everyone else. It says Khartoumim the whole Mitzrayim. Right. So what might be most interesting about this verse is who is not referenced. Did Pharaoh have boils, right? Does Pharaoh get spared the direct impact of the plagues until plague 10? Or is he also suffering with boils? But we're not hearing about him. We'll hear about him in the next verse. But in this verse, it's just the sorcerers. Anyone else? Yes. Let's give Rosemary the microphone. I think for us, it's easier to accept and uh, know Moses. But for people, when Moses came in and started uh, arguing with uh, Pharaoh to let people go, nobody knew him well. I mean, it's like somebody now comes as his prophet. Do we accept him? No. And uh, it takes time that people wake up. Hmm. So in this case, 
besides the physical pain, I think uh, the magicians started having that on their faith also. Yeah. And that's what weakens them more. Because Great. once you have your faith, you're strong, regardless physical disability. Good. So similar to Sue, this is the beginning of the of the weakening of the, I don't know, the, the fealty that the sorcerers have towards uh, Pharaoh. Marshall and then Rebecca. I don't, re I don't recall if we said that with the way the plagues are arranged, they get more and more intense each time. Mm -hmm. But Alter again gives an interesting insight. He said, in any case, what was noxious in the earlier plagues has now become physically unbearable. And that's really reflecting what Rachel was saying. Mm. They couldn't they couldn't stand upon Moses. They couldn't stand in attendance upon him even. They were so disabled at that point in time. Right. So it's one thing to imagine the early plagues that the Egypt is suffering a terrible inconvenience, but the but but you know, like you could imagine that um you know that that the the people of high stature in Egypt could could um withstand it and they could continue to having these encounters with Pharaoh and with Moses and, and Aaron. But now they're actually suffering themselves. Uh, Rebecca, Sue, I see a, <clears throat> I see a commentary from Ramban. That's saying, what we're going to look at next. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, that's the one I'm going to. I pulled up on the verse. So okay. hold the thought. I'll wait. Sue. Well, just, I don't have to say this, but the the I just think sometimes about sometimes we sort of uh, uh, relate. I mean, we have thousands of years to think about this, so we relate the story in kind of a cartoonish sort of way. But it's the amount of suffering is is nearly unimaginable. Yeah, yeah. I'll just I'll just guess that right. And um, there's a there's a. Um, a comment in our in the left Shalem Sidur in the top left of one of the um, pages. I think it's on the Amidah. No, I think it's like on the Michamoch of Shabbat Shachri. There's a Hasidic teaching that says, you know, we we remember just before we dive in the Amidah and Shachri, the Exodus, but we remember it in the liturgy in a pretty brutal way that we utterly <laughs> defeated the Egyptians and many many people died. And the the comment maybe it's I forgot who says it that. Um, that nothing of significance or of goodness comes without resistance and travail, right? And so this, the, the pull-out version of the story is in order to free this people, which had to happen, right? And you can play in your mind how closely you do or do not want to connect it to the year 2024. Freeing this people had to happen, and there were a lot of casualties on that pathway, but it could not have happened otherwise, right? The reverse would have been they stay in Egypt. And so I think that people of people of conscience and leadership have to um, have to handle a version of that all the time, you know. Uh, Tova, and then Joanna, and then we'll read the Ramban. A few comments. I, I made this some time ago, so I wanted to say it again because I don't like sorcerers either or any of those. Um, I think priestly administrators is closer to what they're talking about. Mm. Um, I, I looked earlier, and there's a term hartep, which is very close to hartamim. Mm. That's the actual Egyptian term. And they were courtiers, they were administrators, but they usually had priestly functions as well. Mm. Now, this is from a rabbinic perspective, and they probably do visualize them more as sorcerers. But if you're looking back at sources, I'm wondering about, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I think there may also be an issue that in order to function as priests, uh, they had to have a degree of purity and that boils 
could have rendered them unfit or unable to perform those functions. Fascinating. Both comments are fascinating, um, particularly as we think about what the Torah is going to teach later on in the book of Ayikra about the level of purity and lack of blemish that a Kohen has to have in order to serve. Fascinating. Um, it made me, I don't know if we ever looked at what the what BDB says is the origin of the word Khartoum, um, because it would be interesting if he references that word. They translated in Silverman as engravers because it's related to a word that they interpreted as meaning engraved. Yeah. But, um, well, I'm going to share BDB on this. So Khartoum, right, uh, engraver and writer, um, only in derivative sense of one possessed of occult knowledge, a diviner astrologer mag magician, probably related to cheret, which means to engrave, plus the mem. Um, yeah, I don't, I, not, not that BDB is correct, but I don't see him any, making any connections to an Egyptian right. root, but it's, but it, it seems pretty, um, it was pure, pretty close. An observation, because they're, they're assuming it's a Hebrew root. I was just wondering what the term for those people would have been, and when I looked it up, it was Hartel. Yeah, look at look what it says there. <laughs> if you, I don't know if you can if it's too small to read on the screen. Um, like the fourth line of that entry, the fact that the word is always applied to Egyptian magicians, except in the Book of Daniel, which is late, suggests Egyptian origin, but no agreement amongst Egyptologists. No. Just well, <laughs> uh, and this guy, this guy Harkavi, you don't know, proposes, this is in 1870, that it's a combination of, of Egyptian roots of ar, which means speak, plus tum, which means hidden. <laughs> uh, okay, who was next? Joanna and then Rick. And then we're going to read Ramban. It's interesting to follow, I think, in the text, what happens every time the Khartoumim act and what happens to Paro in the aftermath, right? So in the plague of blood, the Khartoumim were able to do it and were told Vayachazak um, left Paro immediately afterwards, right? So one could think, oh, like Moshe and Aaron, not, nothing to believe in here. My guys can do it too. Mm. And he remains hard. In the plague of frogs, Immediately after the Khartoumim do um, repeat the, the deed, um, the very next verse says that's when Paro called Moshe and Aharon to him to, to have a negotiation that failed in the end, but there seemed to be some level of appreciating what was happening. Mm. Um, and then, we, and so you might think like, oh, Paro's on the right track here, at least now we're moving him a little bit. And then the intransience again, and one would think, so now if the Khartoumim can't do it at all, Faro would keep moving in that direction and we're back to Vayachazak left Paro. So when we read the next verse, Vayachazak left Paro, on which Rashi is also quiet, we'll read an Ibn Ezra, uh, which, make, which goes in a similar direction that you just went in. Um, why, 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 why Pharaoh's reaction to his Khartoumim not even being able to withstand it is, is, is automatically to harden, not to soften. Um, I forgot who was next. Rick. All right, Rick, and then Marshall, and then Barry. And then we're going to be the Ramban. <laughs> um, just to help you with the Sidur, it, it says the Hasidic master Shalom Shachna taught that which results in the good cannot take place without opposition. Yeah, 
Nothing, resu- nothing which results in the good can take place without opposition. And by opposition, it's not just opposition like I disagree with you, but opposition that has to be overcome and sometimes crushed. Right. Marshall Barry Ramban. Yeah, I, although I, you made reference to the fact that Khartoumi may have come from Lachrot to engrave, uh, Unculus has an interesting translation of Harashaya. So I think, isn't Lachrot means to... To plow? Yes, but it's but is, it, is one of those three-letter okay, roots. Okay, is like well, deaf mute. Chetration is one of those three-letter roots that has several entirely different meanings uh-huh. and may, may and may not be related to the same idea. Because um, if you think about parshatruma masechoresh, it's like high-level artisanry. So I don't know if the root chetration, when it refers to artisanry is related to plowing or related to deaf mute or just might be those three letters meant several different things. Uh-huh. Yeah. But we, but it's, but we have it um, in, in the end of the book of Shmo to describe the level of skill that was required to build a Mishkan. Barry. So on John and your comment um, in the earlier versions, it Paro hardens his own heart but as we're progressing, this is a vihazechad, and not yet lay paro. So uh, God's forcing his heart to harden, and going back to this dialectical thing we have, that there needs to be hardship first before the release. So God is forcing this to happen. Yeah, and we, when we started the plague, we started investigating the plagues probably, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, we anticipated this moment in the plagues where it switches from, Pharaoh actually hardening his heart by Chazek Paro at Libo to his heart hardening itself by Chazak Le Paro to when God seems to be doing it. And we talked about um, it was definitely before Shavuot last year because it was based on the conversation that uh, Larry Herman gave us on Shavuot that how do you deal uh, morally with this notion of God continuing to punish someone for something that the person does not seem to be in charge of, because now God is the one hardening the heart, right? My favorite comment on this, which is not necessarily, doesn't mean that it's true, is by uh, Harold, uh, Rabbi Harold Schulweis of Blessed Memory uh, in the Eitzchayim Kumash, that basically says what's going on here is that when you, when you do something enough on your own, you become habituated to it, and then you are a slave to it. And so Pharaoh chose the first four or five times to harden his heart, and once he started, once he was on that pathway, it's not that God forced him to harden his heart, but the way that God created humanity is, it's hard to break a pattern. It's hard to break a habit. And as if it was just happening on its own. He was so used to stiffening and bringing back Joanna's coming here. I hadn't thought about this. And in this case, he's stiffening his, uh, God is stiffening his heart, not even in uh, reaction to something that would show that Pharaoh has any power here. His heart is automatically stiffened, even though the last thing he witnessed was that his sorcerers have no power. That's that's basically how he created his own character. At some point, it's very hard to undo the direction that you're going in. It's possible, but it's hard. Okay. Um, Ramban Nachmanides, uh, 13th century, 13th century, 14th and 13th century Spain. Um, let me share the screen. Some of you already, have, some of you may have it. Um, but in case you don't, okay. Uh, can you all see? Okay. Below, I know it's a little hard to see from here. That the sorcerers could not stand in front of Moses. 
Boshu. They were embarrassed. Busha. Vehichlimu. They were confounded and ashamed. Vechafu. Rosham. They covered their heads. Anyone, can anyone think of a, this is a needle in a haystack, a, uh, a biblical reference to someone covering their head in shame in about uh, two months from now? Haman. Haman on his way out to the gallows, right? Um, so to cover your head uh, to suggest that you don't even want to be seen. Because they themselves, the ones who were, who Pharaoh was relying on to undo the plague upon everyone else, they couldn't even undo the plague on themselves. They couldn't even rescue their own bodies, their own selves. Therefore, they didn't even bother to come to the palace of the king, right? Rachel was suggesting is because they were in pain and Ramban is saying they were in emotional, psychic, spiritual pain. They began to have doubts about their own power. They did not appear in front of Moses, in the courtyard. They were in their own houses, um, cowering and, and, and trying to rehabilitate, right? So he picks up on some of the same things that we picked up on. You know, um, is, are we seeing a shift? Is this the beginning of their conversion or is this not, not going that far? They just, you know, for, for them to appear in front of their master, not only, una- yeah, fair, not only unable to reverse the plague, but not even able to have stopped it to coming on themselves. Might as well, you know, call it, call it a sick day. They won't even come in. Yes, Rebecca. I was also thinking in particular about the uh, covering their heads to hide things. And so therefore they couldn't appear before Pharaoh because it's a sign of respect to be able to take your hat off uh, we have a lot of situations where, you know, we do that for the national anthem. You take your hat off. Uh, we've been in situations going into churches. You have to take your hat off. Yeah. So the fact that they weren't able to do that, they couldn't even appear before Pharaoh. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Anyone else on this first? Leonard? Hi, I have a question on uh, Shadal. If you look in Sepharia. Okay, let me pull it up one second. Um, chapter 9, verse 10. Uh, yes. There we are. 11. 11 now. Okay. Let me share the screen. Okay, verse 11, the commentary of the Shadal. Lutzato. Um, Shmuel David Lutzato. He also, he was mostly a, uh, a Musarist. He wrote... Um, Right, Misilat Yisharim, the path of the just, but, he's, but he also did commentary on a good amount of the Torah. Uh, Shadal. Okay, right. so my question is really on the last two words. He refers to Don Yitzchak. Is that Rashi? No clue. I don't know. I, I've, I've not studied Shadal systematically. I don't know who, who, who whom he's referencing. Uh, he's Italian. Um, no idea. I, I, I'd have to do some research to find out who he's referring. I have no idea. Okay. Um, but it wouldn't be Yitzchak because. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be right. I mean, 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm guessing it's not him. It might have been some contemporary Italian or other European commentator that he had in front of him, but I have no idea. I've never seen that. Uh, okay. Verse, another verse, verse 12. Uh, Joel, you want to read verse 12? You can't. No, <laughs> <laughs> no spoon. And God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them um, when they spoke, when um, God spoke to Moshe. Uh, yeah, the kasher, I would render here is just as God had said, and by said means predicted to Moses, right? And we've had this several times that the heart gets hardened and the Torah adds just as God predicted every single time I'm going to wall up the Egyptians and each time his heart's going to harden. Now we've already talked about the parts of this verse that are most interesting, right? That normally the hardening, the heart happens after Pharaoh witnesses something that suggests, Oh, maybe it's not as bad as I think, or maybe, you know, my, my sources, sources can help me get out of it. What happens here is that he's hardening his heart in direct response to realizing how brutal the situation is, which doesn't make a whole lot of um, rational sense in terms of cause and effect. Um, anything else that people want to ask or say in the verse before we look at, I brought up, I think I have two commentaries in this verse that are worth looking at. Tova, and then Barry. Um, just a couple of things. Uh, one, just the comment that I'm reading Silberman and, and his uh, um, translation is a tad Weasley in it that he says as the and the eternal suffered the heart of Pharaoh to be hardened, which sort of distances God from sort mm. of direct culpability, if you will. Yeah, what do you think that what do you think that means in plainer English? Uh, he allowed it to harden uh -huh. rather than he hardened it. Interesting. It, so there's a little bit of a distancing, which I just thought was interesting. I wonder if that's uh, kind of older English or an intentional way of getting around of not wanting to say that God forced yeah, it to happen. It's a little hard to say with Silverman because he yeah. uses that kind of English. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing is I'm wondering if the, what's equally important in this phrase is that we've reached a point where it's important for God to remind or make clear to Moshe what he, what he has prophesied, what his, Moshe has been told is going to happen. And, you know, that, that for that reason, the hardening of, of Pharaoh's heart is also important that it happen at this time mm. because the real communication is with Moshe. Mm. Good, good. Barry and then Stevie. So the the removal of the, I'll say the courtiers uh, on the way you put it here. Is, what, was, uh, what was it, the court administrators? What was your suggestion? Admin, priestly administrators. Priestly administrators. <laughs> So by 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 having these removed from Paro, he's alone now. Mm. It's his own egotistical, obstinate personality that's remaining. Mm. There's nothing to interfere with his personality now going forward. That's a wonderful comment, Barry, because, again, you could say that if he were so alone, that might make him soften because he's, he was even more alone than he was. Adarabah, the opposite. When he's, when he's only by himself without his helpers, that's where he's getting even less rational. No, I'm going to, I refuse to give in. Lovely. Uh, Stevie, can someone pass Stevie the microphone? Below is a really weird phrase here because this plague had no 
confrontation before. There was no warning. There was no demand. There was just, it was like just after the last plague, there was just another plague. And so who's he not listening to? Hmm. Great. And, and it's almost like the Torah uses that phrase, um, <clears throat> like, uh, what's the right word? You know, automatically, right? But it doesn't, you're right, it doesn't, um, there's no immediate antecedent uh, to connect to this unless we have to read it as, and, and once again, Pharaoh showed his obstinacy in not listening to what God has in, has in mind for him. But you're right, there was no direct warning before this plague. Good. Right. Also, uh, Alehem, like you say, it seems to be like a formulaic thing that means what it usually means about Moses or Moses and Aaron. Um, but it could also be read as the Khartoumim that like they realize that they can't stand up to this and he's not listening to that. That's great. Yeah. I love that read. I, I'm sure it's not what it means. And I think, and I think it's great. Like I, like I can imagine, you know, you know, Shmot Rabbah making that argument, right. That the Alehem here, since there's no immediate antecedent, it's not, it's, it's, it's not, it's, he's not listening to the, to the courtiers who are saying we have no power here saying I'm digging my heels. in. I love that. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, Marshall, and then we'll read Ibn Ezra on this verse. Yeah, really echoing uh, Stevie, uh, Alter has really the same reading, where he says that it's striking that Pharaoh persists in his resistance, even as his afflicted soothsayers. Soothsayer. How many synonyms can we get for a cartoon? <laughs> he wasn't soothing. The experts upon whom he had been depending flee the scene. Yeah, flee the scene. Great. Probably Alter read you know, the Midrash. But, uh, yeah, great. Also echoing what Stevie said. All right, in four minutes, let's read the short Ibn Ezra. I'm going to show this, share the screen. Some of you have it, depending on which chumash you have. Um, okay. Vayachazek Adonai. He says five short words. Alkain lo bikesh lehaatir. Literally, you know, since he, a God hardened his heart or he, his heart was hardened, therefore, I'm going to add in, he didn't even, bakesh, request lehaatir, that request that Moses plea to God to remove it, right? We've had before that when Pharaoh is in the height of his suffering, you know, we, we're seeing him melt a little bit and say, I'm not willing to give in completely, but can you give me a break here? Can you go ask your God to turn down the volume? And then the hardening only happens after that. Here, he skips right to the hardening of the heart, and he does not even request that it be removed, meaning our understanding is what's the status before we get to the next plague, which is happening soon, what's the status of the Shekhin? It's still there. there. There's no moment where where Pharaoh asks Moses to remove it, and he and he concedes a little bit, and then the next plague comes. He's just gone straight to hardening his heart, almost as if plague number seven, which is beginning, uh, yeah, on the next verse, is happening on top of verse number six, which means his double obstinacy is causing double plague, right? Um, the footnote there, um, which is not Ibn Ezra, it's the moder- it's the commentator on Ibn Ezra, the modern commentator, as he did in the case of the frogs and the swarms. So he doesn't do it every single time, but there have been a play- there have been moments where he's asked Moses to intercede, um, and then only after that intercession does he harden his heart again. Okay, um, good. Uh, I guess we have time to actually read verse uh, th- uh, thirteen. We won't get to the commentary on it until next week. Uh, Leonard, do you want to read verse? Did you read? Did you just read? No. Oh, okay. So Leonard, everyone's spoken today, which is wonderful. 
Hi, by the way, I looked it up. Uh, Don Yitzchak is Yitzchak Abarbanel. That makes more sense with a Don, right? Because he was, he was like a, uh, yeah, he was, he was a Don, Don Abarbanel. Nice. Okay, so I'm on 13. Yeah. By Yomer Adonai El Moshe, Hashkemba Boker, Vehitiat Save the Fne Faro, Vehamarta Elav, Ko Amar Adonai Elohe Ha Ivrim, Shlach et Ami Vyavduni. Okay, so a lot of that should be familiar. Okay. And uh, God said to uh, Moses, Get up early in the morning and uh, stand up in front of Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Ivrim, uh, send, let my people go. Send out the people so that they can worship me. Good. Right? Somewhat formulaic. We've seen um, versions of this verse, not every single time a plague is going to be announced, but sometimes um, I'm so grateful to who, uh, uh, the comments that we had on the possibilities of why the sorcerers were not being omeid lifnei at Moshe. We don't have omeid here. We have eat yet saved, but it's interesting contrast that the sorcerers could not stand in front of Moses. And now Moses is un, un, uh, unimpeded, right? He's being told, you stand before Pharaoh. Pharaoh can no longer have his sources around him because they are either wounded or they're embarrassed or both. You get to present yourself in front of Pharaoh without any inter, uh, intermediary. Good. Uh, Correct. Stand strongly. Present yourself. Be a be a representative. Right. Right. Parshat Nitzavim. Good. Um, well, we're at nine thirty. So why don't we call it here? Uh, Rashi is quiet on this verse. We'll look at some other commentators when we get to it next week. Um, Cold Filas coming up. Uh, again, welcome to Joanna. Happy Wednesday. Koltuv, Koltfilan, Koltuv. Bye, everybody. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.